From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. My colleague went on a little adventure eight years ago. Andrea Dukakis checked out something akin to an ATM where you could buy cryptocurrency. I'm going to insert $5. So you've added a $5 bill and it tells you five so far with 9.87 millibitcoins. For a while, her micro investment was worth a pretty penny, but its value has plummeted recently. Today, the highs and lows of Bitcoin. Then Black and Latino Coloradans are chasing progress. What neighborhood you live in, you're able to afford, affects the school that you go to, affects the teacher force, affects whether or not you're going to get out of high school, affects whether or not you're going to get into college. All of these things are connected. A new report shows some progress, but is it merely on paper? Hi, I'm Jasmine Liddington, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. My car got hit, and ultimately it was totaled. When I realized that the car wasn't going to be fixed or covered, I just decided that what would be a higher purpose for this car, as opposed to parting it out for small amounts of money myself or just getting rid of it, the best decision was to donate it to an organization that I appreciate. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. By now, most people have some idea of what Bitcoin is and some general knowledge of cryptocurrency. But back in 2014, it was a relatively new concept. That's when my colleague Andrea Dukakis learned about a machine, a Bitcoin ATM, and did a story on it, which meant buying some. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from an expert about Bitcoin's highs and lows. First, though, Andrea is here to share her own experience as a Bitcoin mini mogul. Hi, Andrea. Hey, Ryan. Tell us more about what prompted you to buy Bitcoin back in the day. Well, I had been curious about Bitcoin for a while. It was first introduced in 2008, officially launched in 2009. And I read an article at some point about this Colorado company that had set up these machines where you can go buy Bitcoin. And I decided to go purchase some. And so where did you go exactly? Well, the machine was tucked into this nondescript gardening store. It was the brainchild of a man named Noah Berger, who started the company XB Teller. And here's a clip from that story. And just a note, I say bitcoins instead of (laughs) bitcoin, and no one really says it in the plural. Now I'm finally ready to buy bitcoins. And first, I get a free smartphone app. I've downloaded what's called BitWallet, which is one of the apps that you can use. And I'm opening it up, and I'm going to try to make a transaction. So where do I go? Once I get a barcode on my phone, which is sort of like my Bitcoin email address, I scan it over the screen on Noah Berger's ATM. It reads the address, and then I put in some money. Okay, so um, I'm going to insert $5. So you've added a $5 bill and it tells you five so far with 9.87 millibitcoins. So now I own 9.87 millibitcoins. Basically, that means my $5 bought me just a small fraction of a bitcoin. But it's pretty exciting. Great. I'm a bitcoin owner. You sure are. Congratulations. (laughs) That's wonderful. Okay, what happened to that $5 investment? 
It stayed in my Bit Wallet for the last eight or so years. It's still there. And every once in a while, I check it and check its value. At Bitcoin's height, less than a year ago in November of 2021, my $5 was worth close to $600. Wow. But the value of Bitcoin has dropped precipitously since then. Today, it's worth about 200 so way down from its peak. Well, though, if I had invested $5 in anything and it became 200 I'd still be happy. True. Uh, but if you had invested, say, $100 at the time, I mean, you'd be sitting on thousands of dollars at right. this point. It would have been worth well over $10,000, though much less today, but still a very good investment. And I kick myself for not putting more money into that ATM. Yeah, you don't sound like a gambler. Right. <laughs> and uh, just to note, the Bitcoin ATM is no longer in that gardening store. The store was actually broken into. Someone took do the dollar bills out of that machine. And Noah Berger says he still has some machines in various stores, and they are occasionally the target of criminals. Okay, so these machines apparently are vulnerable. Well, let's put Andrea's experience into some context now with Joshua Ross, Director of Entrepreneurship at DU's Daniels College of Business. He has taught a class on blockchain, cryptocurrency, and specifically Bitcoin. Josh, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. So, uh, as Andrea said, there's been a precipitous fall in the value of Bitcoin and, frankly, other virtual currencies. Uh, was this drop inevitable given its meteoric rise? That's a great question. Uh, I think if you look over the history of Bitcoin, we've had a number of resets where it's hit a low or an all-time high, and then it's actually come back and retested the lows. But I think there's some uh, macro events that have taken place that have caused uh, Bitcoin to drop down to the $20,000 level. Some macro events, what would that be? Well, we had a time where uh, we had this pandemic and uh, our Fed, our Federal Reserve, uh, put uh, trillions of dollars into our economy. Our government put trillions of dollars into our economy. And a lot of people had extra spending money and they started to invest in different types of cryptocurrencies. Huh. And at the same time, you had a lot of uh, larger institutions, hedge funds, making very risky bets in uh, different types of cryptocurrencies. And at a certain at a certain point, we've had a couple uh, events that have caused some of these larger institutions that have been over leveraged to um, have to uh, what's called a margin call. They uh, actually the the price of Bitcoin has dropped to a certain point where they have actually had to uh, go in and actually uh, give add more Bitcoin or more money, and they didn't have it, so they started to liquidate their positions. So as they started to liquidate their positions, all of a sudden the price of Bitcoin would drop. Would drop. Okay, that's interesting, the connection between the federal stimulus and the performance of Bitcoin. Right. right. Andrea is going to ask some questions too. You know, it's important to note that there isn't this authority that oversees a currency like Bitcoin, and it's actually not quite clear how Bitcoin came to be. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Bitcoin was introduced in 2008 by Satoshi Nakamoto, and nobody knows who Satoshi is. It, it could be an it, a they, a he or she. It's a pseudonym. And Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin. The, the date is very significant because that's when we are coming out of the financial crisis, the mortgage crisis mm. of 2008. And Satoshi was so uh, distraught and upset with our government and the fact that 
the number of these uh, institutions made these huge bets and basically lost and got bailed out. And it, in return, what happened is we actually had to put more money into the economy through QE, right, quantitative easing, easing the economy, but actually debasing our uh, our dollar, our, our U.S. currency. So, to, so Satoshi came up with Bitcoin as an alternative cryptocurrency. You said Satoshi could be an it, meaning like a robot? No, I, I was more just saying that it could be anything. We, Any, have, no, we have no idea. All right. But but human. Yes, but de- de- <laughs> <laughs> definitely human. Well, what are the benefits of this sort of currency? I mean, I guess the question is, did the problem that this anonymous person set out to solve, did it get solved? You know, that that's a very good question. And that's one of the uh, big debates is, is Bitcoin actually a currency? Is uh-huh. it something that we can use uh, in every in our everyday lives to buy and sell goods and services? And for me, the 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 answer is no. It's and I think it's more of an, an asset. But what Satoshi set out to solve is to create a uh, currency that is decentralized, that is not controlled by a single entity, that could not be debased, right? That that it could not uh, be inflated, it could not lose its value, and it could not be censored in terms of a government could not come in and control it or take control of somebody's bank account. And with that, Satoshi did solve those um, goals. Um, And all of this is on the blockchain, something called the blockchain. Can you explain just briefly what that is? Yeah, that is a great question. So the blockchain is what's called a distributed ledger. And a distributed ledger, think of it, think of a database is a central location to store all the data. A distributed ledger actually stores the data on a bunch of different computers. It's called, it's, it's decentralized. And every one of those computers has a full copy of that ledger. And every time a transaction takes place on the blockchain, all of those computers called nodes have to go in and authorize that transaction to say this is actually a legitimate transaction. So it's like distributed accountability. Distributed accountability. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Hmm. You said that this wasn't really a currency, although, of course, it's something that does have value. Uh, We heard recently that the governor is going to uh, start taking cryptocurrency as tax payments, for instance. The state's going to start doing that. Uh, that's on track to start in September. It, yes, absolutely. I'm a big fan of Jared Polis. Uh, um, and, uh, I'll, I'll say that he's seeking re-election. <laughs> We're not going to make this too political an interview no, here. No, not at, not, not at all. Um, yes, the uh, state of Colorado is going to allow you to pay your, tax, your state taxes in Bitcoin and also a number of different uh, licenses that you can get. But the state has been very clear the moment they get that money in Bitcoin that they'll turn it over to fiat currency, U.S. dollars immediately. They can't have that risk uh, on their on their balance sheet. Um, you know, one of the things we hear a lot about when it comes to Bitcoin is mining Bitcoin. Um, and mining something we've done for centuries underground, so it's sort of hard to understand that this can be a virtual thing. Can you explain what Bitcoin mining means? And energy intensive, right? Very energy intensive. And that's a great question. This was one of the geniuses of uh, Satoshi. A couple things that Satoshi needed to solve is trust in the network that people trusted, avoid double spending, right? This is a digital currency. So how do I know that the, the Bitcoin I have hasn't been 
copy pasted and sent to somebody else as well. Hmm. So the double spending and also distribution and also value of the Bitcoin. So came up with this concept of miners and there's these Bitcoin miners out that they authenticate every single transaction that happens on the Bitcoin blockchain. And in order to, and so every transaction that happens on the Bitcoin blockchain, these miners authenticate. Every 10 minutes, a new block is added to the Bitcoin blockchain. As one block closes, all these miners uh, compete to solve a complex mathematical equation. The miner that uh, completes that mathematical equation gets credit for adding that block to the blockchain and right now gets six and a half or 6.25 cryptocurrencies for their work. Do the math, that's about $120,000. So what that does is these miners are expending a lot of energy to solve that equation. So it provides uh, you know, value to actually getting the Bitcoin. All these miners are authenticating every transaction, so it's in their best interest to make sure these are authenticated. So they, uh, um, so they, they solve those problems and that puts trust into the network. And they also, the final thing is say, make sure that every transaction is actually correct in saying that Andrea, when she sent me that Bitcoin, actually had that Bitcoin in her wallet, so she didn't spend it somewhere else. So the idea is that they are both kind of mining, minding the system, <laughs> in mining the system, yeah. and adding value at the same time. And, and speak to why that requires so much energy. Is that just computing power? Yeah, great question. So when this first started out, when Satoshi and just a couple people were doing the mining, they were actually able to solve that um, that problem on laptops. It required very little computing power. And back then, the reward was 50 Bitcoins. So think of do the math on what that was worth, what that would be worth today. What Satoshi did is it knew that more and more miners would come onto the network, so they had to make that um, more difficult, that equation more difficult to solve. So as the more miners came out of the network, that equation got harder to solve, requiring much uh, more uh, complex computing power. Mm. And, and now you have these machines that all they are made to do, these ASICs, is to uh, solve this complex equation. Now there's another technology we hear about, Ethereum, that's related to all of this. Explain what that is. Yeah, so, so Ethereum was uh, developed by Vitalik Buterin, and it was it is a different type of cryptocurrency with a much different use case. Vitalik's goal with Ethereum was to solve some of the issues um, that, he, that he felt Bitcoin had and also create what's called a distributed computer network. And the idea is that you create this Ethereum platform and then people can build applications that set up on top of this Ethereum platform to solve different types of problems. So what's an example? So an example is there's a company up in Boulder called Helium. And what they are doing is they want to give internet, uh, ubiquitous internet access to everyone. So what you can do is you can go buy one of these little boxes, plug it into your network at your house, and it sends out a Wi-Fi signal. And the goal is to have people do that all throughout neighborhoods, all throughout municipalities, and it creates a large mesh network. So as a user then, let's say I have a dog with a Wi-Fi collar. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't put a cell phone on him, but I could connect to this uh, Helium network. And every time I connect to it, I would pay the Helium network in Helium tokens. 
And if I was using your helium, your router, your connection, you would get pe- paid a, f- a few helium tokens for so that. All of that would be built on the Ethereum platform. Yes. Does the decentralized nature of this, uh, and we know to some extent that the answer is yes, but I'll just have you expound a bit. Um, does it make it uh, a particularly good uh, currency for criminal minds? That's always been a great question and a great debate. Um, I still believe uh, if you are going to uh, be a criminal and transact in various nefarious illegal activities, uh, the U.S. dollar is still probably the best way to do it. It is the most anonymous way to hand over physical currency from one person to the other. Hmm. In terms of cryptocurrency, for the most part, at some point, you actually have to show your identity. So if I want to go buy some cryptocurrency on one of these exchanges, let's say Coinbase, they have KYC, know your customer. And I actually have to show my license and be authenticated. Hmm. They can then, and then if I move that cryptocurrency to a wallet and then to another wallet and then to another wallet, you can still track where that currency moves. So you can actually, it is not as anonymous as people think it is. I'll just say that President Biden has signed an executive order that directs the Treasury and other agencies to recommend policies around cryptocurrency. In just the last 30 seconds or so, is this a fad, Joshua? I don't believe so. Um, I believe that we're going to have a shakeout in the cryptocurrency world that's gone from a $3 trillion asset class to under a trillion. But I believe where the real opportunity is the underlying blockchain technology. The underlying blockchain technology as it relates to cryptocurrencies? As it relates to cryptocurrency and a lot of other applications around voting, healthcare, supply chain. You think that's going to persist. But what does that say about the the future of the currency itself, do you think? I think the future of Bitcoin, if we're looking at it just as one, it will be a, an, a store of value, really an asset. An asset. We haven't even gotten into NFTs. I suppose a conversation <laughs> for another day. Andrea, thanks for sharing your journey with us. Yeah, thanks. And Josh, appreciate the expertise. Thanks for having me. Joshua Ross, Director of Entrepreneurship at DU's Daniels College of Business. He has taught a class on blockchain, cryptocurrency, and Bitcoin. We also heard from my co-host, Andrea Dukakis. Still to come, demystifying property tax assessments. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? During our lunch break, we'd be sitting outside like peeling mangoes and eating them fresh. And then I'd go inside to like dance these Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Caribbean style movements. I think that's when I most felt myself. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for ¿Quién are we? everywhere you listen. Ballooning home values mean many Colorado property tax bills are also going up. But tax notices themselves can be hard to interpret. So KRCC's Shauna Lewis and a Pueblo homeowner took a tour of his property tax statement to see how it's calculated and where the money goes. Hello, hello. Hi. You must be Zach. I am. Our first stop on the tour is in front of Zach Casillas' home. The street has a mix of houses, bungalows, duplexes, adobes, with mature trees and nice yards. I actually grew up in the house next door, which is still my father's house. I was the paper boy all the way through high school, so I knew the neighborhood and I know the neighborhood. Casillas bought his house 18 years ago. 
It's yellow with brown shutters and trim and big windows. It's only 816 square feet. You can tell on the inside that it used to be a one-bedroom house. It's been converted into a two-bedroom house, so it's me, my wife, and our son. It's my first house. It's probably not our last. We invited Pueblo County Assessor Frank Beltran to meet us there. How exactly do you assess the value of my property? It goes in stages. First of all, we have the whole county broken out into economic areas. And then from there, we go down to neighborhoods. Beltran says that gives them a general framework to evaluate each home in a given area. And then it's, is it a rancher? Is it a two-story? Is it a four-level? Right. Does it have a basement? He's looking for similarities in style, size, and other characteristics so they can group comparable properties together. When you go up to a house, you've got to look at it and you've got to say, for the year it was built, was it an average or was it low cost or was it fair construction? He points to Casillas' home. I would say this was an average house for 1935 standards. Right now, Casillas' tax notice says his home is valued at a little more than $97,000, an amount that's likely to change next year. If I was to go get it appraised because I was going to sell it tomorrow, could I use your appraisal value? No, because ours is always based on information from 18 months back. For this year, it's based on all of 2019 and the first half of 2020. Beltran says current home sales will show up in the 2023 reappraisal. Because of the sales that we're still seeing, everybody's going to go up about another 20 percent. 20 percent in one year? Oh, yeah. We had some last year that went up 50 to 60 percent, some neighborhoods. Once the assessor has determined the value of the property, it's multiplied by what's known as the residential assessment rate. That number is set by the state. It's currently 7.15. So for Casillas' home, we multiply 97,000, remember that's the determined value, by 7.15%, and that gives us what's called an assessed value. In this case, it's 6,950. Now we need to take that information to our next stop on the tour. You can jump into my truck and I can just bring you back here. We head over to the historic gold-domed county courthouse to meet Pueblo County Treasurer Del Olivas. He explains what happens to the value we just calculated. It involves something you may have voted on, mill levies. A mill is $1 on every $1,000 of assessed value. How the process works, getting the value from them. We get then the mill levy request from the entities. Those two together then make up the tax amount. That means Olivas gets the value from Beltran, the assessor, and then applies the various mill levies to that value. On Casillas's bill, that includes the school district, library, and two water conservancy districts, along with the county and city, all of which set their own mill levies annually. Each entity determines their own mill levy based on their approved budget. To see what the Pueblo City School District mill levy pays for, we head over to our last stop on the tour, Centennial High School on the north side of the city. It's an awesome new educational facility. That's Pueblo School District D60 Chief Financial Officer David Horner. This is one of five aging schools the district is replacing, and construction is well underway, paid for in part by property taxes that homeowners like Casillas vote on and pay. I noticed on my tax bill there's two different mill levy taxes, and can you explain to me what each of those are? One of them is the general fund mill levy, which is set by the state legislature, and that goes in to fund general operations, and then the state also kicks in money to fund general operations for our school district. The second one is a voter-approved bond mill levy, and that is set each year to cover the debt for paying for all our new schools. 
The elements of Casillas's bill are similar for homeowners around Colorado, though the amounts will vary depending on property values and local taxing authorities. And most Coloradans are seeing increases due to rising real estate prices. In Pueblo, I'm Shauna Lewis, KRCC News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how Colorado has managed to narrow racial inequities, be it in housing or education, and what's left to do. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. One of the country's first rodeos took place July 4th, 1869, in Deer Trail, Colorado. Today, top prizes can be thousands of dollars. Back then, the winner won a new set of clothes. The word rodeo means roundup in Spanish, and every year, cowboys and girls compete across Colorado. In winter, there's the National Western Stock Show. Summertime brings weekly competitions in Steamboat Springs and annual events like the Pikes Peak or Bust Rodeo, Cattleman's Days in Gunnison, and the Greeley Stampede, which was first called the Spud Rodeo in 1922 in tribute to the potato crops around town. Celebrating all things rodeo is the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs for the people and animals who've made their marks in arenas around the country. Like the bucking bull who threw almost every rider who tried him before retirement in 1995. His name was Bodacious. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. Ideally, the color of your skin does not determine your opportunities, whether it's education or housing. A new report suggests that Colorado, more than any other state, is inching closer to the goal where your skin color does not determine your outcomes. But it also finds that equity remains a dream unrealized. From the Colorado News Collaborative, reporter Tina Griego joins my co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Let's start with some insight into this report. Chasing Progress is a multi-newsroom collaborative that CoLab is heading. So we've got the Colorado Sun involved. We've got Kaiser Health News. We have Chalkbeat. We have the Denver Voice, the Denver Post. So we're all involved in trying to tell the story to map progress toward equity among Black and Latino Coloradans looking back over the last decade. You can think of it as a continuation of a report that was called Losing Ground that was issued in 2013. This is a report by my executive director, Laura Frank, Mm. who at the time was heading up a nonprofit investigative called iNews. So they actually went back to 1960 and went from 1960 to 2010 looking at five key census indicators. It wasn't the only data, but those kind of uh, call it like the spine data was looking at poverty levels, home ownership rates, educational attainment, so K-12, and then higher ed as defined as four-year degree plus, and median family income. So they tracked that back to 1960, and the report Losing Ground was actually called Losing Ground for a reason, in, in that in some of these key indicators, Black and Latino Coloradans were worse off than they were in the civil rights era. Hmm. Um, so... This project was saying, okay, well, what's happened 
in the years since 2010. And we looked at the same indicators, though we substitute um, household income for family income. It's a it's a newer measure. It's a more accurate measure for what we're what we were looking at. And we looked at health data, and then where we could, we supplemented with state data. So Chalkbeat, for example, looked at Colorado Department of Education data by school district to really get granular and and get a better picture of what might have been happening over the decade. This report found that poverty rates among the state's Black and Latino residents fell to historic or near-historic lows. And some examples are high school graduation rates, particularly for Latinos, dramatically increased. Black and Latino median household income climbed at rates that outpaced inflation. Important to note that. And this is really interesting in light of the growing data about the unaffordability of the housing market. But Latino home ownership cracked the 50 percent mark for the first time since the Great Recession. That's correct. So those are some of the highlights, right? We saw poverty levels plummet. So the gaps, which is what we were particularly interested in, right, because we're measuring equity between black and Latino Coloradans and white Coloradans, those shrunk. The black-white gap went from 15 percentage points to 9 percentage points. And for Latino, it went from 16 percentage points to 7 percentage points. So like a very significant narrowing. Um, There's going to be caveats with all of this, but... I think it's important to note that the overall, those numbers fell. Income went up. Poverty rates fell. I think one of the brightest spots is certainly the high school graduation rates. And I um, I do want to point people to Yesenia Robles' work in Chalkbeat, looking district by district at where, where was some of this change most significant. So a place like Aurora Public Schools huge change in their attempts to make a difference in the Latino graduation rate over the last decade. Any other key findings stood out for you? Yes. So you mentioned home ownership. The thing with home ownership is that while the Latino home ownership rate cracked that 50% mark, the gaps between bl- black and white are are widening um, instead of narrowing. And there are all kinds of reasons, systemic reasons for that. And I think for me, the most troubling data point is our longstanding battle to increase higher educational attainment among Black and Latino Coloradans, particularly Latino Coloradans. Colorado kind of wears this mantle as, you know, number two, I think we're number two now, most educated state in the country. But if you parse those numbers and really kind of drill down, what you see is that Colorado has very successfully imported a lot of educated whites in particular, and that we are not doing a good job um, and have not for many, many years of moving people, particularly Latino students and black students, from high school into college. So there's the first kind of big, big hole, right? We have like Mm -hmm. half are going on. And then getting them through college. So our attainment rates are very, very low for Latino. I think it's I think we're at about seventeen percent have a four year degree plus, and it gets better if you look at two year degrees plus, and if you look at certification. So if you count certification, two year and four year plus, we're a little bit better, but we're, there's still a huge, huge gap there, which has ramifications down the road for our economy, for our labor force, um, for um, what 
the director of higher education, Angie Piccioni, calls it like the activating the potential of a growing part of our population. So that is something that's really stuck with me. Well, of course, you just mentioned educational attainment, and we know that that tends to have a lot of correlation on poverty levels. Like, obviously, your income and educational attainment, There's a there tends to be a correlation. So this report found that Black or Latino Coloradans were still twice as likely to live in poverty as their white neighbors. Yes. So two things there that you're hitting on. One is the connecting of the dots. All of these things are connected, right? So what neighborhood you live in, you're able to afford, affects the school that you go to, affects the the, the teacher force, affects whether or not you're going to get out of high school, affects whether or not you're going to get into college. Um, all of these things are connected. We know long-standing research, we know that the higher your educational attainment, the higher your your income is. We know that homeownership is the number one path to creating generational wealth. And yet, as Tatiana Flowers um, for the Colorado Sun reported, and in, in her piece was homeownership, 30% of black families who are ready to buy a home, like they have the income, they have the credit scores, they don't have the down payment. And so mm. there are programs that are stepping in to try to help with that down payment. The second thing, though, is those gaps are still there. They're persistent. They may have narrowed, but they are still there. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, home ownership is key. It's considered key for attaining generational wealth. And although there was this uptick in Latino home ownership, the rates remained lower than they were in 1970. Yeah, right. And we are running into now inflation, higher mortgage rates that are shutting more people out. I mean, we're all very aware of the issues of affordability that are permeating throughout the housing market that are going to create headwinds to this slight, I would call it slight upward movement of the Latino population, which is also the younger population in the state. So the Latino Latino population is coming into its prime home buying years, and it's running now into these very strong headwinds. We've linked your reporting to CPR.org. In one of your stories, we're introduced to the Bocanegra Tejeda family. Mm -hmm. Can you fill us in on why their story was such a great example of what this study was about? So Maria Bocanegra Tejeda and her family, she's a child of immigrants, and she is the first generation to graduate from college. She graduated from UNC just back in May. And over the last decade, her story and the family story illustrated that kind of plus side of what our reporting found. That is the progress side. Their household income went up. They were able to move from a very crowded trailer that they shared with relatives to their own home. They became first-time homebuyers. Maria became the first. She entered college, and she became the first college graduate. Her younger sister entered high school at that time, and she graduated as salutatorian. And it, it, theirs is a story of promise and potential, of upward mobility. Now, they didn't do that all by themselves. Certainly their own choices and their own initiative and resourcefulness and ganas, their desire, it helped move them forward. But they got support, for example, in homeownership from Habitat for Humanity. They never would have been able to buy a home 
had it not been for Habitat for Humanity. Maria, when she entered college as a first-gen, had wraparound support from the University of Northern Colorado, which she took advantage of. And she received Pell Grants um, and and a scholarship that allowed her to attend and get through college without student loans. A huge difference in their family. Um, Medicaid expansion helped support some of the medical costs that uh, Maria's father, he has chronic illnesses. And so Maria's father is also a member of a union at a meatpacking plant. So he saw his wages increase. Maria's mother entered the labor force when it was expanding at the end of the decade, and that helped bring up their household income. So... What I most liked about Maria's story and the family story is that they recognize that this combination, this kind of almost, I don't want to call it a magic combination, right? But it's like a, this coming together, this confluence of their individual initiative and these programs that help support them, move them toward the path of equity. One memorable line in one of the articles you co-wrote with fellow journalist Bert Hubbard reads that progress toward parity is progress toward equity. What exactly does that mean to you? We are looking at where Black and Latino Coloradans sit in comparison to white Coloradans. And in that gap, in that disparity, is where equity lies. And so what we're looking for is for Black and Latino Coloradans to come up to where white Coloradans are. We don't want parity in which we've accomplished it because white Coloradans are now making less money and are entering poverty and are not graduating from high school or graduating from college, right? It's That's not what parity looks like. We want parity in which they're e- equally at the same level or the opportunity to reach the same level. And so if we can truly level that playing field and we can say we have parity, then we can say we have made progress toward true equity. So I guess when you boil it all down, does equity still remain elusive for Coloradans of color? Yes. Nearly everyone that we interviewed, and we interviewed many, many Black and Latino Coloradans, um, nearly everyone focused on the gaps the question of progress over the last decade was viewed with great skepticism, in part because of what happened with the pandemic and what happened with the economy and what's happening now with inflation. The question is, how real was that progress? Was it just a function of the economy? Was it just a function of demography? And the minute that it's tested, it crumbles. Like we built an economic house of cards and now it's falling. And one of the challenges of this project is really to look at programs and policies that might have made a difference and that can continue into this decade, right? Looking for the durable within the ephemeral. And so that is one of the challenges in our reporting is we're trying to find those places where this might actually stick. For most of the people we interviewed, the gaps are a huge concern and... I think one of the key quotes comes from Pastor Del Phillips, who basically says, you know, I wish I had his quote right in front of me, but he basically says, look, if you're telling me 
that you know there's a white Coloradan on the other side of the Grand Canyon, and I'm on this side of the Grand Canyon, and the white Coloradan is saying, "Hey, look, the chasm is narrower, so go ahead and jump." He said, "I'm still going to fall to the bottom. The chasm is still there, mm. and why it's still there, and how we actually close it." is the challenge that lies ahead. Tina, where does your reporting go from here? Right now, we are working on a closer look at what happened with poverty. No other state in the nation saw a greater narrowing of poverty rates between Latino and white than Colorado. So we want to take a look at what does that actually mean? What does that mean for us now in in the tests of this time? Obviously acknowledging that because you have risen above a federal definition of poverty level does not mean that you are self-sustaining or struggling. So we want to look at that kind of gap that exists between the definition of poverty and being self-sufficient, being able to support a family in Colorado. And... We are also taking a a deeper look at higher education. Coming more quickly is a piece looking at poverty among Denver seniors that the Denver Voice is doing, and another more local piece looking at discipline and disproportionate discipline in the Boulder area. Tina, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Reporter Tina Grego of the Colorado News Collaborative speaking with my co-host Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Griego's project with other newsrooms is called Chasing Progress. It examines socioeconomic and health equity among Black and Latino Coloradans over the last decade. We have linked to the reporting at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. News stories don't wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, CPR News helps you stay connected. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. Bees in Colorado make at least 17 different flavors of honey. Something to celebrate, which folks just did in June, marking National Pollinator Week. CPR's Jenny Brandine traveled to Eagle to meet a master beekeeper and honey sommelier. The trip gave her time to think about her own pantry. I'm an interesting person to do a story on this because, well, I'm the kind of person who buys my honey from King Supers, you know, in the bottle shaped like a bear. Sits on the cupboard until it gets all crusty and hard. Proceed to Mill Road. So I'm not the most discerning when it comes to the fine things in life, so we'll see how this goes. Hi, hi, Carmen. Nice to meet you, Jenny. Before we talk to Nap Nectar's master beekeeper, Carmen Weiland, about honey, let me tell you, bees are freaking fascinating. Here's just a couple of factoids. They build honeycombs in the shape of a hexagon because it's the most architecturally sound shape. One bee does a waggle dance in the shape of an eight that tells her fellow bees the exact coordinates in relation to the sun to find food. 
and I believe every second that she's wiggling in the figure eight, the cross part, it's one sixteenth of a mile. You could have one bee one day at my house, and then the next day I've got over 40 at my house, so she told her sisters to come over and have my lavender buffet. <laughs> in the Knapp Harvest store, as I make my way through the honey-based creams, soaps, and honey jars from bee colonies across Colorado, I learn more. If the queen bee is too aggressive, Carmen said you squash her and you can order a new one online for $40. Carmen Weiland has a deep love of bees. She's adopted the European way of referring to bees, mother, daughter, and father, instead of queen, drone, and worker. And I always refer to the bees as my girls. I'm always like, oh, I'm going to go visit my girls today. She explains how a distinct honey flavor gets made. Let's say a honeybee stops off at a lavender shrub. She goes in, gets the nectar, churns it up in her honey stomach, mixing it with enzymes, then swings by a berry bush and does the same. She spits that out into another bee, and so on and so on. Once that's packed into a comb, the bees flap their wings furiously to get the water content to around 17%. There's your lavender and berry honey. Unbelievable. Each different honey reflects the flowers or bushes the bees drank from. Between the floral, the bitter, the salty, the smoky, there's so many different flavors of honey. And there's one that tastes like marshmallows, roasted marshmallows. It's crazy. Another crazy fact. So I'm allergic to honey. Wyland is allergic to honey. I would break out in hives when I ate honey. which is But it's getting better. She eats Slovenian dew honey from dew drops on trees daily to build up her immunity. She doesn't break out in hives like she used to. So you guys, do you want to try some honey? Yes. So we have our three... The Sheridan family from Oregon first tastes fireweed honey. It was very delicious. 12-year-old Lucas doesn't need fancy adjectives when tasting honey, but master tasters describe this honey as light, flowery, with subtle tea-like notes, and a nice buttery finish. Fireweed is on the American Honey Tasting Society's top five honeys to try before you die list. Wyland then serves the family a Colorado wildflower blend. Not spice, but a bite. A little bitter, maybe? or there's a... It's a darker honey. It kind of tasted like a flower petal. Not like a gross flower petal, but like a really nice flower petal. It was really good. The family concludes this raw honey has way more flavor than store-bought honey. A lot of grocery store honey has been pasteurized. It's heated over 160. You never want to heat honey over 105 because you lose all its beneficial enzymes and minerals. So once it's pasteurized, you're just eating sugar at that point. Raw honey from a beekeeper is super healthy. It's used as an anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, used to treat coughs and wounds. In fact, Wyland is developing a cream with a local cancer center to soothe and heal radiation burns. And yeah, for the foodies out there, there are more ways to eat honey than with peanut butter. Uh, cheese, you know, at night, you can drizzle it over your salmon after you make it. Yeah, on a charcuterie board. Nap Ranches, Carrie Hogan. You know, if you take a cracker and then some of that spicy salami and then a little bit of horseradish cheddar and some honey, it's so cool, that, you know, sweet, savory thing. It's just The Sheridan family rounds out their tasting with a lavender honey. And yeah, I got to try some, too. Oh, wow. Ooh, that is nice. I think it's going to make my breath smell good. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Bees, of course, are not the only pollinators in Colorado. Last summer, we spoke with CSU Extension horticulturist Lisa Mason about ways to attract pollinators of all kinds, especially in the face of climate change. 
So are there drought-tolerant plants that native bees and uh, maybe even honeybees love? Absolutely. There's a wide variety of beautiful flowers you can plant in your yard. Um, Bees generally go to white, yellow, and bluish colored flowers. Hummingbirds, if you want to attract them, they're going to go for the red and the the orange colored flowers. And butterflies in general just like brightly colored flowers. Different shapes of flowers are going to attract different pollinators. So uh, bees need a landing platform. Uh, So penstemons are are great. They can crawl right into the penstemons. Blanket flowers, sunflowers, those are all great options. And they're all drought tolerant, too. So you'll definitely save on your water bill. Okay, this is fascinating. So clearly there has been research as to what color flowers attract which pollinators. Absolutely. And native plants are an excellent option and have a lot of those traits already built in. So native plants, you really you really can't go wrong. Um, and all these flowers add a variety of color. You know, everyone wants a, a very aesthetically pleasing landscape. Um, native plants and drought tolerance plants are definitely a great way to go. Okay, run through that one more time for us, just because it goes by rather quickly. What colors were good for bees and what colors were good for hummingbirds? So so hummingbirds like red and orange colored flowers, okay. generally. Uh, bees prefer blue, yellow, white, um, sometimes uh, other pale colored flowers. Um, those are general guidelines. Another good guideline to look into are to make sure the flowers you're planting have uh, the the plant reproductive parts. Make sure they have the pollen and nectar sources available. Because horticulturalists, uh, we we breed plants, we propagate plants, and uh, in that process, certain varieties, the the pollen and nectar is actually bred out of the plant. So oh. it doesn't have it's a be- you have a beautiful flower for the landscape, but it doesn't have any of those pollen and nectar sources for the the insects. And how do I check that? How do I know that when I'm choosing a native species? Doing research, and and there's a lot of great plant lists out there, but also you can just look inside the flower. Look for for the anthers with the pollen on them Uh, can be a great way. And if you're in an outdoor garden center, where are the bees visiting? Uh, That can be another good way. Look for the bees. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, It's funny that you said that hummingbirds like red flowers because I think of hummingbird feeders are almost always red from what I Remember. And that's correct. They are attracted to that reddish huh. color. But a key also to attracting hummingbirds is a lot of the diet of hummingbirds in the summertime are other insects. So by planting nectar, flowers that have a lot of nectar, you attract insects, which then attract hummingbirds. Okay. And you want people in general to avoid repetition in their garden. In other words, the the more variety you can have, the better, correct? Variety is good. Small groups of the same plants can be beneficial, though, because when bees pollinate, they transfer pollen from uh, one plant to another plant of the same species. Okay, so you don't want a monoculture in your garden, but it's okay to have pockets of similarities. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Lisa Mason is a CSU Extension horticulture agent in Arapahoe County. She leads Native Bee Watch, a citizen science program. We spoke in June of last year. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our own, wait for it, busy bees. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. 
Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.